I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, in the last Little Atoms of the year, Judy Golding talks about her father, William Golding. So Faber are releasing a new set of editions of the novels of William Golding. And today, to talk about the first set of three, in part, as well as her father, we're going to be talking to Judy Golding, who is William Golding's daughter and was a decade ago now the author of the memoir, The Children of Lovers, a memoir of William Golding by his daughter. Judy, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. I say that that memoir is a... It's 10 years old now, and famously, it took a long time to write as well. So tell us something about writing that memoir and, and, and why it took so long, I guess. Well, what happened was, you know, my father died relatively suddenly. I mean, he was in his 80s, so it shouldn't have been such a shock, but it was a huge shock. And I felt um, completely disorientated. And because of that, I was frightened that I'd forget things. And so I started within a few weeks, just kind of jotting things down. And eventually I produced a a huge mass of very incoherent, um, very disconnected stuff. And I'm not sure I really so much went back to it. I think the whole process of remembering just grew into a habit. And to begin with, I wrote a, a rather sort of academic, very chronological account of his life. And obviously there was going to be, in fact, there will soon, I realized, you know, the biography was going to make that unnecessary. And I knew it was going to be a very good and exciting biography. And we were very grateful to John Kerry for doing such a a stupendous task with incredible thoroughness. So I thought, well, I can be more selective, I suppose. And for that reason, it's much harder, I think, to write something shorter when you've got your your mass of stuff and you look at it and you think, well, what do I really want to draw out? And so I put it in a cupboard and forgot about it in a sense and wrote what I thought was relevant to him as a father, father and husband and brother and son, because I thought that was what I could contribute. I didn't really feel I was qualified to talk about the 
lit side very much, though I do. I mean, you know, well, everybody does. Everybody's a reader, so why not? And central to, to your father's life is his relationship with your mother. And we'll talk about in a while how that overshadows their relationship with you and your brother. Um, but tell us, first of all, how your father and mother met. Well, my father had become a teacher because he thought he might just as well. He was at a bit of a loose end after Oxford, as a lot of people are, I think. And he ended up teaching, first of all, in a Rudolf Steiner school. And then he went back to Oxford and did a teaching qualification because he decided he liked teaching. And after he'd done this, he got a job at Maidstone Grammar School. Um, It was actually Maidstone Grammar School for boys, but its title is Maidstone Grammar School. There is another grammar school which is called Maidstone Grammar School for girls. But he was teaching at the boys one. He got the job because he had a number of qualifications as a pianist because he was a very keen musician. And so he went off to live in Maidstone. And at the time, he was very left wing. And my mother was an absolute firebrand. She really was, you know, quite definitely left wing and belonged, as I've always been told, to the Communist Party at that stage, which was much more common in the 1930s before the war when people saw it as the way of combating fascism. I don't think she stayed a member of the Communist Party. Uh, Anyway, they met in London, ironically, although my mother actually lived in Maidstone, they met in London at a meeting of the Left Book Club. And I've always been told that was it instantly. It was really love at first sight on both sides. And essentially from that night on, they were a couple. The sad, sad bit is that my father was engaged quite seriously to somebody else. And he had to break it off with her. And he felt guilty about that for the rest, not exaggerating, for the rest of his life. My mother was sort of engaged to somebody else, but I think it was a a less um, emotional situation. But they realised, I think, that they had to be together. And I think subsequent years, 50 plus years of pretty happy marriage, bore that out. A lot of your memoir talks about, you know, how that central relationship between your mother and father basically overshadowed everything else, including the fact that they had two children. Yes, I think you have to say, though, without my mother, I don't think there would have been the novels. I think she encouraged him. I think she she challenged him in the right way. And also, because she loved him, he wanted to succeed and be a successful person who could provide her with an interesting and, and good life. And I think it's true that their absorption in each other made it more difficult for them to be involved in their children but um you know tough I mean they were very responsible parents especially my father in many ways and what can I say about it because I think for my mother she just was completely wrapped up in my father and it was quite difficult for her to engage fully with us as children because apart from anything else I think we were a bit distracting Whereas essentially they had a very absorbing relationship with each other and they talked and talked and talked to each other the live long day, honestly. And they continually surprised each other, I think. And the marriage was very alive. I think it went through a few bumps and um, I would be surprised, honestly, if there were any marriage on earth that didn't. But um, it was, for my father, the enabling 
circumstance of his life. It allowed him to deal with most of the sort of weaker sides of his character, and it enhanced his ability to be an imaginative writer, I think, because he felt secure. He was working as a school teacher during the time while he was trying to become a writer or trying to get well known as a writer. What do you remember of those days when he was writing, but before he had any sort of recognition? It's an absolute mystery to me. I can't imagine how he, he wrote. I mean, he was doing so much else. He was writing, but he was also directing plays. There were lots of amateur dramatic companies in Salisbury, and he and my mother were very keen on that. He did a lot of music. He taught for the WEA and was always shooting off on buses around the country. Uh, and we had these a whole series of really rather ramshackle boats that he looked after. It's not a surprise to me that he wrote quickly because I don't see how he could have done it any other way. And I never saw him write until I was much older. I suppose he wrote after we'd gone to bed. I mean, it was very difficult for them to get me to sleep. And I think that was a big thing. But once I had reluctantly gone to sleep, then I'm sure he shot across to the kitchen table or whatever and started writing. And he did say to me at one stage... He thought it was very good of my mother not to mind him writing so much in the evening. And maybe that's, maybe that's what happened, that for a while she went out to do Amdram and he stayed in and um, scribbled these novels. Obviously, you know, his first novel, Lord of the Flies, becomes a massive success. And indeed, it's one of those handful of novels where people who have never read it or would never intend to read it would be able to use the title of the book in some sort of like oh you know this untidy bedroom looks like lord of the flies or something you know it's like it's become one of those one of those handful of books that sort of transcended its own story in a lot of ways Leading up to the publication of it, obviously, again, one of the stories of Lord of the Flies is that it was like, you know, rejected multiple times, etc. Can you remember back to the sort of lead up to the actual publication? Yes, I remember it very clearly. I mean, apart from anything else, there was a, an arrival and departure of parcels. And it's very exciting to children when parcels arrive. They always think it's something for them, you know. And um, there must have been a period of, I suppose, about a year now that I've seen the list of publishers he sent it to and things, where he would send the parcel off and it would come shooting back a few days later and then he would send it off again. Uh, And it's worth saying, I think, that although they were really very strapped for cash at this point, he doesn't seem to have minded the postage, which would have been a significant, you know, dent in their income. I also remember when it was finally published, you know, the kind of exhausted sense of joy that there was around the place. And I must have picked up such an intense sense of relief about the actual publishers, because I thought for a while, I mean, I was only eight, nine, I thought the title of the book was going to be Faber and Faber. And it was only quite a few years later, I think, that I noticed that it was actually called Lord of the Flies. I did like the cover. I think the cover, and rightly, I mean, I think it's a wonderful cover with these strange naked boys carrying bananas in one hand and sometimes wearing an old school cap, you know. That's a brilliant, brilliant cover. 
And what then changes for your family after the publication of this book? A lot changes. I mean, apart from anything else, we had a bit more money. We bought a very hopeless car, a 1934 Lanchester, which was um, always failing to start. It got damp and didn't, um, you know, didn't want to get going and things. And this went with our slightly hopeless boats. And eventually, I suppose we got a television, though not till I was about 13. But there was definitely more money. That was one change. The other change was that extraordinary people would appear, you know, really, really riveting, extraordinary people would kind of blow in and then blow out again. And I was obviously limited to the time before dinner when you know I was about to be sent to bed, which was always agonizing because it was so fascinating. I mean, one of these people, he had a terrible stutter, but he was so attractive. And I only found out years later, I asked my mother who that was, and she said, oh, it was Kenneth Tynan. So these exotic really people. I mean, this was Salisbury. It wasn't a very exotic place, but um, just one after the other, these these people arrived, you know, trailing clouds of glory and um, had dinner in our little flat. So it was a big, big change. My father stayed just the same, though, rather badly dressed with a straggly beard and um, not very tidy. And I don't think it gave him a big head at all. I think he, he had far too much sort of superstition for that. He was always, any success, he thought, was just edging towards failure, you know. He thought that fate was lying in wait for him. Anyway, but does sorry, it change, I, I was going to say, does it change the dynamic, the existing dynamic between your mother and father? I don't think it did at first because he was 40-something how old was he? Let's see. He was 43. She was 42. She was an astoundingly good looking woman. And she always looked much younger than her age. And I think she was the glamorous half of the couple and he was the bearded, um, talented, artistic one. So that lasted quite well for a while. And after a while, the balance did shift as he became much more famous. And I suppose she felt that she was less, she always looked astounding and she was very good at dressing herself in striking ways. But I think her confidence went a bit. And after a while, I think she did feel she was playing second fiddle. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Judy Golding on the occasion of the republication of three of her father, William Golding's novels. We haven't mentioned what those novels are yet, those being The Inheritors, Pincher Martin and The Spire. And Judy, as we just left off, your father has just, you know, the author of Lord of the Flies, uh, an enormously successful novel was going to be turned into a film eventually and let's talk about how that success with that in mind how does he approach his next novel i think one of the things we're saying is that the first three novels they were published september 54 september 55 and october 56 and this was when he had a full-time teaching job, two relatively small children, and lots of other interests. And I think by the time of the publication of the third novel, he must have been pretty exhausted. And there was then a gap before the next. And I think after that gap, the next novel was one called Free Fall. I think he felt he needed to pace himself a bit more. I think he was frightened of writing himself out. He once said that After you've published a book, after it's gone and the initial euphoria has gone, it's not that you think you won't write another book. You know you won't write another book. So I think quite early on, the anxiety about was there going to be another book? What should he do? Should he let it come gradually or should he try to write himself into it? I think that started virtually with the publication of Pincher Martin in 1956. And I think it stayed with him right up until, you could really say, right up until the night he died. And I think he just had to say, well, I hope it will come. He says in his journal quite often, I should really like to get a book. And he means, I should really like to have a book to write. So it was not a simple thing. And even once he did have a book and it had sort of warmed itself in his mind and seemed really to be there, he'd often have great difficulties after this point, actually, in writing. The first three books seemed to have arrived almost by magic. Subsequently, it was real hard labour, I think. The first of, of these three that February publishing, The Inheritors, has a, um, a lovely new forward by Ben Ockery. Um, and I will happily say on this podcast that this is one of my favourite books of all time. It's an absolutely stunning piece of work. 
you've talked in the past about how Locke and Far, two of the the Neanderthal characters, Locke being the the sort of, I guess, the main protagonist of the story, are representations of your father and mother. Yes, I think, I mean, I can recognise that, especially Far, actually. She's got my mother's amazing practical intelligence her tendency to be just slightly irritated with people who didn't keep up you know and in the the sort of I don't want to put spoilers in but uh, in some of the more grim aspects of the novel in the events that she has there's one stage when she knows something and Locke doesn't and she keeps it from him and this makes her irritated and I think that's a brilliant piece of observation I think that's just what would happen in fact, it was Arthur Kirstler who said, oh, I think these are portraits of the two of you. Their kind of cooperative ability is very, um, very accurate as a portrait of my parents' marriage. Also, the fact that in some ways, my father really wasn't as quick-witted as my mother. I think there are two people in The Inheritors who are based on him, actually, because I think Locke is the sort of slightly clowning. I mean, he talks about or in the book, he's, he clowns for the people. I think that's one aspect of my father, the kind of ingenuous person. And the other one, I think, is Tuami, the one of the new people who is ruthless, but who also is carving the hilt of a dagger and finds that the hilt is more important than the blade, even though the blade is one he's going to kill somebody with. But the hilt, he, he puts in the shape of the hilt the woman he's having an affair with and the baby Neanderthal that they they steal. And he envisages this being kind of hidden in the shape of the piece of ivory he's, he's carving it from. And I think those two characters are two sides of my father's personality. And it's I think it's very remarkable that he gets them both in the book. And I'm so glad you, you like it so much. I think my father said it was his favourite of all his books, and I'm sure it's the best. Absolutely it's, sure. It's written in the 1950s, and obviously relatively recently there's been a lot more discoveries on Neanderthals and their nature and, and culture. And what's so striking about this book, written at that time, is how sympathetic they are. This is not the ignorant cavemen that they were you know the Neanderthals had always been portrayed at even if the you know the book is is not strictly accurate in terms of what we know now um what did your father think what was he trying to do with this book do you think in terms of his portrayal of them the epigraph to the book is a quote from H.G. Wells and to a certain extent I think he's just saying well I don't my imagination tells me that it wasn't like this, you know, that the Neanderthals weren't uh, baby-eating monsters, which is what um, H.G. Wells says, and they weren't sort of lumbering, grotesque figures. There's something much more in my father's imagination about them as, well, as victims, I suppose, as people who couldn't quite hack it and therefore were destroyed by the inheritors, who are, of course, us. In the sense of what he was trying to do, well, this is 1955, 10 years after the end of the Second World War, the emergence of what had happened in the Holocaust, the full awareness of what people were capable of. And I don't think it's only Lord of the Flies where my father explores the capacity of us humans, us homo sapiens, for 
just straightforward, dreadful cruelty, not merely violence, but cruelty. And I think also he wanted to subvert things. He wanted to say, I'm going to make you look at what you've done as a human being, and I'm going to make you see it from the point of view of the people you've done it to. And um, it's fantastically successful, I think. I, at any rate, never finish that book without a a strong sense of of guilt uh, for being um, the successful inheritor of the earth. The next book, Pincher Martin, which again in this edition has a um, has a new forward by Marlon James. Again, this is a book where there is a twist and we are not going to give any spoilers away. Your father was in the Navy during the war and people have often discussed the extent to which his experiences during the war and as you've said, obviously the events that you know unfolded right across the course of the war may have influenced a lot of his work, his subsequent novels. This one in particular, I wondered again, what are your memories of him writing this novel? It's an unusual novel in his body of work in that we have very little manuscript evidence for it. And there's clearly, there's a notebook that's lost because I remember drawing a picture of a a dance dress in it and um, I can't find it. So that's lost. And it's a shame that we don't have that background to show how he plotted it because I think it's a very complex book. It doesn't read particularly complexly until you as you say, get to the end, which we won't talk about. In terms of his own experience, he says that he made Pincher into the most unpleasant man he could possibly imagine realistically. And then he was very disconcerted by the number of people who said to him, well, yes, I do recognise a lot of myself in Pincher, I'm afraid, you know. And I expect that was slightly true of my father. He also gives... Pincher, one of his own childhood memories of going down to the cellar in the house at Marlborough in his parents' house, where he always felt there were bodies crushed into the wall and there was a monstrous old woman in the corner of the cellar. So there's quite a lot of him in Pincher, but I think it's one of the series of characters in his novels, which is a kind of ghastly version of him, what he might perhaps have become if he hadn't married my mother. I don't know. There's also... um, and this is important because I think it's where where he manages to show some of Pincher's real manipulative unpleasantness. My father did some sort of very minor acting in the 1930s. And Pincher in Civvy Street is an actor. And there's a marvellous bit of dialogue when they're trying to cast something with the seven deadly sins. And the man doing the casting says to Pincher, who's given name is Christopher Chris. Can you play Chris, Greed? So he turns them round and turns Christopher Pincher Martin into Greed and says, can you be yourself? And I think that's a very clever bit of um, irony, I suppose. But it's, it's also, it works in the drama very well. It's a very, I think it's a very well-achieved book. And the naval stuff, um, I don't know that he was ever on a destroyer. And certainly he wasn't in the Navy with the friend who is the original character called Nathaniel in the novel, who is originally a man called Adam Bittleston, who got him the job in the Steiner School and was a great lifelong friend of his. And he certainly didn't kill him. Oh, I shouldn't say that. 
Let's just say something about the the third novel in this first set, then the Spire. Um, this one with um, a Ben Myers has done the uh, the new forward to this one, Salisbury, which is um, where you all grew up. Of course, is the uh, is presumed to be the model for the cathedral in the Spire. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, you can go around the cathedral and see things that he he talks about. Um, the tomb, for example, the tomb that Jocelyn has made with his naked or nearly naked cadaver with all the bones sticking out. That's, um, there is one, I can't remember the name of the person who's buried in it, but there, it's a, a, a genre of tomb called a cadaver tomb. And um, you can see it, it's um, sort of on the left-hand side as you go up towards the, the further altar. Uh, he talks about the Lady Chapel, and actually there isn't a Lady Chapel because the cathedral is dedicated to the Virgin Mary anyway. But apparently there was originally, long, long ago, because I checked this out when I talked to somebody who knew about it. But it's definitely the spire, and he never made any bones about that. There's a place where he taught in Bishop Wordsworth School in the Close, in Salisbury Cathedral Close, and out of that window, there's an absolutely amazing view of the spire. And he said he just looked at it for years and thought to himself, how would I build that? I just wanted to ask you, you know, just to say something on this republication of these these novels. So just to finish us off, there's, as I said, The Spire, Pincher Martin and The Inheritors are the first three. And then in the new year, there's, there's going to be another set of three, which I think includes Lord of the Flies. Um, and then in, later in the new year, another set. These are books that are, it's not like they're out of print or anything, you know what I mean? These are well-loved books all, but it's, it is lovely to see them in these new editions. Well, I'm glad you feel that. I must say, I think the um, the introductions do provide, uh, for me at any rate, it was very reassuring to see that somebody um, like Ben Ockrey really, really felt that these novels were, were still relevant. But about The Spire, I think it was such a struggle for my father to write it. And it's so heartening to see that Ben Myers feels it's not only achieved, but actually a vision and that my father is a visionary in that novel. I think he would be pretty delighted by that. So I've been talking to Judy Golding, and we've been talking about three novels by her father, William Golding, those being The Inheritors, Pincher Martin and The Spire. And these are all out now from Faber. And as I said, there'll be three more coming your way in, uh, in January. Judy, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about your father and talk about these books. I've enjoyed it enormously. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.